so we are in the third week of our series in 1 Timothy. Uh, two weeks ago, we considered uh, the, the aspects of healthy discipleship. Uh, last week, Kevin Huddleston was with us, and he talked about the centrality of the gospel uh, as we think about a healthy church. And this week, we are going to consider aspects of healthy mission. So as a church, we are upfront and clear that Jesus has given us a very distinct mission to go into all the world and make disciples. And we put that front and center for everyone to see about First City Church. A part of our core value is that the church exists not for our comfort, but for the mission of God. And we're called not to retreat from culture, but to engage the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our heart is to see the gospel bring renewal to us and our church and our city and to our world. So we go and make disciples. That is central to who we are. And as people that have been given a mission, we have to ask ourselves, how do we as a church, how do we as individuals live out this mission in a healthy, biblical way? And that is what we're going to consider this morning. And so there's three things from this passage three aspects of healthy mission that I want us to consider. The power of healthy mission, the heart of healthy mission, and the message of healthy mission. So please turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to 1 Timothy 2, and we're going to first look at the power of healthy mission. So Paul begins his instruction on mission to the church with a call to prayer. As we heard Bridget read in verses 1 and 2, this is what Paul writes. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Paul urges prayer. Synonym for this is implores it. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's urging. There's an energy. There's an urgency behind Paul's call to the church to pray. This is something to be central to our life on mission, that we pray for people. Prayer is not an afterthought. It's not an add-on. It's central. It's front and center in healthy mission. And the words that Paul uses for prayer here, for the most part, overlap in meaning, but they do give us sort of an idea of the nature and the tone and the posture that our prayers should take. So, to make supplication— This is to urgently request something. If I'm going and giving a supplication to somebody, I have this sort of, I'm crying out to help for you. Please help. Please do something on behalf of this person. So there's an urgency and a cry for help in supplications. Intercession carries a similar idea. There's an urgency when we're making intercession, but there's something else behind that. There's this implication of boldness and persistence. So the image of an intercessor is this. Someone who boldly goes before a king over and over and over asking for something and asking that king would show favor to either them or on behalf of someone else. And so our prayers not only have an urgency to them, but there's a boldness to our prayers. We need not be shy in our prayers. We need not be squeamish. God invites us to entreat him. God invites us up close to boldly pray on behalf of others. We should be persistent in our prayers. We should be going over and over and over again. We should have an attitude of, I'm not going to take no for an answer. And if that seems a little bit impertinent on our part before God, go to Luke 18 and see how Jesus taught us to pray. 
We are to be bold. We are to be urgent. We are to be dependent. And we're also to be thankful. We make requests with a heart of thanksgiving, knowing that all blessing, spiritual and material, comes from God. So urgent, dependent, bold, and thankful. These characterize the nature and tone of our prayers for all people. These are the prayers that characterize healthy mission. Now let's ask this question. Why is prayer so important? Why is Paul urging prayer first of all? Because without prayer, our mission is powerless. Scripture tells us that God is sovereign over the hearts of men. And he must move on men and women's hearts in order for them to receive the gospel. Here's what Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what happened. God shone the light of the gospel into your heart. He opened your eyes, he opened your heart to receive, to know Christ, to believe in Christ. God is the author of salvation. Apart from God shining the light of the gospel and opening your eyes to see the glory of Christ, we're unable to believe. The power of healthy mission is prayer because we need God to open the eyes and the hearts of men and women so they can see the glory of Christ. So we pray to God, God, open people's hearts. Open people's eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. So several years before he wrote this letter to Timothy, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesian church. So the church that Timothy was pastoring, before Timothy was there, Paul writes a letter to them. And in this letter, he pens a prayer that he prays for them. And this is what the prayer reads. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul prays for the Ephesian church that they may know the love of Christ, that the Spirit may strengthen them, and they might be filled with the fullness of God. Why does Paul pray these things? Because he understands that apart from the power of God, these things aren't possible. And so he prays for the church that they may experience these things. What an incredible prayer to pray for someone. That they may understand more deeply the love of God, that the Spirit might strengthen them, and they may be filled with the fullness of God. Why don't you and I pray these things for those who do not know Christ? Let us be people who pray and go to God with our supplications. God, allow my friend, allow my family member to know the depth of the love of Christ in the gospel. Why don't we intercede on behalf of our coworkers and our neighbors? God, fill them with your fullness that they might understand you and know you. This is a rich prayer, church, that God has given us. And let us pray that those who do not know Christ may experience these things for themselves. How many of us in this room know Christ, have experienced Christ, are filled with the fullness of God because someone prayed this for us? May we pray this for those who do not know Jesus. The power of healthy mission is prayer. Now what we also see in verses 1 and 2 is prayer is not just about God's power working the lives of others. Prayer is also about the power of God transforming us. 
So let's look at the rest of verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we pray so that we may lead a peaceful, godly, dignified life. You see, prayer has this effect on us. It makes us more godly and dignified. Because as we pray for those who don't know Christ, as we urgently go before God on their behalf, it begins to transform us. It begins to make us more godly. The way we live before other people changes. I mean, try to stay mad at somebody if you urgently pray for them. This is just practical. This is, this is free. Try to stay mad. Try to stay angry. Try to be indifferent towards somebody if you urgently pray for them. Urgently pray that they may know the love of God. Urgently pray that the Spirit might strengthen them, that Christ might dwell in them. Pray that urgently for someone and try to stay angry. Try to live in a sinful way before them. won't happen because God will work to transform you. And so Paul says here, as you pray, this is going to affect the way that you live. It's going to transform you, make you more godly. And this godliness is missional. This godliness has a purpose in mission. You see, your righteousness your purity, your holiness isn't just about you and your walk with the Lord. It isn't just something that is personal. There's a purpose for it in mission. Notice what verses 3 and 4 say. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is good and pleasing. What is this? What is this in that sentence? Prayer and living a godly dignified life. These things are good. Praying for people that they may know Christ is good because God desires that all people would be saved. Living a godly and dignified life is good. Why? Because God desires that all people would be saved. Because as you and I live godly, dignified lives before those who do not know Christ, it draws them in. It gives them this sense of what's going on here? What's different about this person? Who is this Jesus? And so our lives are impacted by prayer. Godliness has missional purpose. Now look, yes, we need to take a stand for truth. We need to stand on biblical principles, stand on the truth of the word of God. We need to have backbone. But this is no excuse for us to be jerks. And too often, standing for truth is an excuse to be a jerk and sinful. What is pleasing to God according to this passage? Standing for truth and being a jerk? No. Godly, dignified, peaceful life. That is what is good and pleasing to God. You see, our stand for truth, our backbone, means jack squat unless we're walking in godliness. Do my Chris Farley impression. Jack squat. Man, not enough of you got that reference. That is sad. Yeah. Anyway. Walking in godliness, this has missional purpose. Prayer transforms us that we may walk a godly, dignified life. And this missional godliness is important for us to understand. And we need to understand that this power to do this comes through prayer. And so First City Church, the power for healthy mission starts with prayer. God urges us to pray, so let's be a praying church. Let's 
pray on Sundays as we just did. Let's commit to praying in our gospel communities. Let's commit to praying in our homes. Let's commit to praying when it is just us and the Lord. Because God hears our prayers and he uses our prayers. He works through them. And so let this be the power for our healthy mission. So that is the power of healthy mission. Now the heart of healthy mission. In verses 3 and 4, kind of going back to this section, this, meaning prayer in a godly, dignified life, is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the heart of God, that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God is not a reluctant Savior. He's not stingy with his salvation. He doesn't sort of just begrudgingly, well, I suppose I'll save you. No, God's heart is to save. His desire is to save. This, the heart of healthy mission is the desire that all people would be saved. Now, let's be careful about something. Be very easy to read this passage in sort of just this very general, vague, sentimental way. God wants everybody to be saved. Cool, let's move on. There's a particular punch to this passage that pushes us out of our comfort zone that we need to be aware of. And so let's look back at verses 1 and 2 and kind of put the pieces together again. So Paul says this, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Notice the flow of thought here. He goes from, hey, pray for all people to pray for kings and people in high positions and authority. So he goes from general to specific. And what's going on here? Well, let's say you and I are are hanging out in a city, and we've never been there, and we need to get something to eat. And I go, hey, look for all the places to eat. The pizza places, the burger joints, the taco stands, the sandwich shops. What am I doing there? I am highlighting the different kinds of places to go eat. And this is exactly what Paul is doing. By moving from general to specific, Paul is highlighting the kinds of people to pray for. It isn't just, hey, pray for people in this amorphous, general, generic sense. He's saying pray for all kinds of people. Have a specific eye towards the kinds of people that you and I interact with on a daily basis, the kinds of people that are in our lives. Pray for them. Be specific. Have an eye towards all kinds and types and classes of people. And what's the point of this? We may ask, well, why is Paul highlighting types here? And why does he highlight kings and rulers? Well, how likely are you to pray for those who pose a threat to you? How likely are you to pray for those who oppose you or harass you or believe differently than you and maybe they threaten you or maybe even try to harm you? Would you be super intentional to pray for those people? Would you be super intentional to pray for their salvation? See, for the Ephesian church, rulers and authorities were a threat. They were opposing the church. If you go in the book of Acts and you read about what happened when Paul goes to Ephesus and the riot that breaks out in the middle of town, know that the church was under threat by these people in authority. And so Paul highlights these specific people because he's thinking, hey, you probably are going to struggle to pray for them. Specifically, their salvation. You probably are going to pray for God's judgment on them. That makes sense. But to pray for their salvation, they may have been reluctant to do this. 
So Paul is emphasizing, hey, if we're not careful, there's going to be people we don't pray for. There are going to be types of people that we won't pray for. What kinds of people are you reluctant to pray for? What kinds of people are you reluctant to take the gospel to? What what kinds of people would you prefer that God pour out his wrath on and judge them rather than save them? What kinds of people are you quick to write off? Or or maybe you don't necessarily write them off or you're, you're not like going, God, judge them and bring wrath on them, but you keep them at a distance or perhaps you're indifferent to them, don't really care if they get saved or not. Who are those people? What kinds of people for you cause you to sort of be reluctant to pray? I I want you to just right now, either on a piece of paper or maybe in your note app or just just make a mental list, who, what kinds of people fall in those categories? Perhaps for some of you, it's liberals. Perhaps for some of you, it's Trump supporters. Perhaps for some of you, it's those who push an unbiblical sexual and gender identity agenda. Perhaps for some of you, it's atheists and agnostics, people who follow other religions, Muslim or Buddhist. Perhaps for some of you, it's religious hypocrites. For others, it may be the addicts or the abusers or the sexually indulgent. For others, it might be the liars and the manipulators and those arrogant people that I have to put up with. And we all have our lists. We all have our kinds of people that we're writing off and are indifferent to and we're stiff-arming. Who's on your list? What kinds of people are you reluctant to pray for? What kinds of people would you say, I don't really want them to be saved? Now, Put a face to the kind. Like, be specific. Put a person you know in that category. Be so specific that maybe even right now as you think about them, there's sort of an emotional reaction going up your spine. Those are the people that God has a heart to save. This is the punch of the passage. You see, the ones that we're reluctant to pray for, God's desire is for them to be saved. The ones that you and I are so quick to write off, God's heart is for them to be saved. The ones you and I want God to rain his righteous wrath down upon, God's heart is to save them. The ones that you and I are indifferent towards, keep at arm's length, God's heart is to save them. And here's where this passage challenges our comfort. Because the kinds of people that you and I are ready to write off, we're called to pray for and take the gospel to the kinds of people you and I want to keep at a distance, we're called to pray for them and take the gospel to them. The kinds of people that we feel angry towards and we want God to judge, we're to pray for them and take the gospel to them. You see, the heart of healthy mission is the desire to pray for and take the gospel to all kinds, all types, all classes, all categories of people. We exclude no one, we write off no one. Because this is the heart of our God. Here's what else. We, all of us in this room, are a kind. We're all 
a kind of person. We've all been that kind of person in one way or another. Some of us, we've been that corrupt person that had really bad political beliefs. Some of us, we have been the skeptic and the atheist and the agnostic and the one who ran after false religions. Some of us were the ones that pushed an unbiblical sexual and gender agenda. Some of us, we have been the liar and the abuser and the manipulator. Some of us, we have been the addict and the sexually indulgent. Some of us have been the greedy capitalist and some of us have been the lazy freeloader. Whatever kind you want to put, we have all been in those lists and yet God came after us. The grace of God chased us down. God did not stiff arm us. God did not write us off. God was not indifferent. His spirit, his love, his grace, his mercy, his gospel kicked through every rebellion, every piece of pride, every piece of lust, every lie, every abuse, everything that we did as an offense to him. He came and he got us and he saved us. His love and his grace reached into the darkest pit of our sin and pulled us out doesn't matter who we were, who we are. There's no kind of person. There's no type of person that God does not save and cannot save. And so hear me on this, especially if you are here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus. Understand that God's salvation knows no limitation It doesn't matter what sin you have done. There's not a single sin that the blood of Jesus cannot pay and he cannot redeem. There's not a single sin that you cannot be forgiven through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are, what type of person you are. God saves through Jesus Christ. There is no person he can't redeem. And so church, when our hearts are overtaken by the radical love of God and his salvation for people like you and me, his salvation for all kinds of people, it makes us deeply desire to see every type of person saved. When we see the heart of God for all classes and categories, it sets our heart on fire that all people, no matter the type, would be saved. And so practically speaking, what does this look like for us? Well, we saw prayer. So we pray, and as we pray, we are transformed into more godly and dignified people who go and share the gospel. But there's something else here that I think is an important implication for this. If our desire, if our heart is that all types of people be saved, then I think the number one way that this healthy mission will show itself is hospitality. Hospitality reflects the heart of healthy mission. So last summer, Pastor Paul preached actually an entire sermon on hospitality as part of our evangelism series. And so I commend that to you. And so um, if you want a little more in-depth treatment, go back and and listen to that online on our website. But I want to just spend just a couple minutes and make a few comments about hospitality. See, the New Testament places significant emphasis on hospitality. An openness, a welcome to all people, especially those who are strangers and foreign to us, different than us, reflects the welcoming heart of God. 
And hospitality isn't just being nice. See, we can be nice to people and keep them at a distance. We can be nice to people and keep them at arm's length and be rather indifferent towards them. Now, hospitality is opening your heart, opening your life, opening your home to people. It's sharing life. It's sharing joy. It's sharing trial. It's sharing pain. It's taking risks with people. But when our hearts reflect God's heart, that all kinds, all categories of people would be saved, when we see the hospitality and the welcoming that God has shown to us, man, that we will open our lives to all categories of people. Not just to people who are like us. Not just to people who are the same age, or the same ethnicity, or make the same amount of money, or in the same life stage as us, or share the same political beliefs as us, or share the same uh, ethical beliefs as us. We open our lives and homes to people who are different, and sometimes radically so. We open our, our lives and our homes to people that we might normally in and of ourselves keep at a distance and be indifferent to. And so you want to practice the heart of healthy mission? Practice hospitality. And I just think pastorally, I often have a burden for us to be more missional. And when I sit there and I kind of think about, God, what, what can we do to, to be more on mission, to, to share the gospel with more people? It's easy for me to think of like programs and events. But if we're owning hospitality, if we're sold out to hospitality, we don't need to do programs and events. Not, not that they're bad. There are plenty of good evangelistic programs and events, and we may do some at times. But understand this. Oftentimes, churches, and we can fall into this temptation, will do programs and events to compensate for a lack of hospitality. And no event, no program will ever reach people with the same effectiveness as hospitality of opening your life and your home and loving people up close and personal. And so church, let us be committed to hospitality. Why do we need programs and events when we have dinner tables? I I still remember the first table that Mindy and I purchased after we were married. We wanted to find the best table that we could afford, and so we settled on this nice $110 table from Walmart. We thought, hey, we'll just throw a tablecloth over it, and we'll just save up and and upgrade, and we'll get something else in in a year. Man, that table, we used that table, like many of you, for a lot of things, not just eating off of. Sometimes that was the last thing we used it for. I mean, we used it for a table to do grad papers. We used it for a table like a workbench. We used it to throw like all of our spare paper and mail, and so just kind of collected stuff. Uh, the, the chairs were coat hangers. I and mean, we used that table for everything. And in all those things, that table excelled. I mean, we kept that thing for like six years. And even when we got rid of it, the thing was like in mint condition. I'm like, man, Walmart has like these indestructible tables. But there was something else at that table excelled at that I'd never expected, or maybe even underappreciated. Evangelism. I I remember the first time Mindy and I invited a bunch of non-Christian friends over. We, We had a party, and we just hung out and had good food, had great conversation. We didn't share the gospel that night. We didn't do any sort of like bait and switch Jesus juke on them. 
but it led to more conversations. It led to more opportunities to hang out. It led to more hospitality, and it led to gospel conversations. Some of the richest relationships we had with non-Christians came out of that evening. So it's so simple in some ways. Imagine that hospitality as, as, as an evangelistic strategy as the Bible presents for us working. And so it doesn't matter if your table is some discount thing you got at Walmart or a model of Ikea ingenuity or this beautiful thing from Restoration Hardware or you got a custom handmade table from Jake White <laughs> or if your table is a piece of plywood propped up on a couple storage boxes. Use your table. It doesn't have to be fancy. It's just love people. Invite them in. Serve them. Don't try to impress them. Just love them. Serve them. God has given you 90 meals a month if you eat three meals a day. If you just take one of those, one, and invite a non-Christian in to begin to develop a relationship and show hospitality, how will that not radically change you being on mission? I dare you to do it. See what happens. One meal out of 90. Invite someone in and show hospitality. Church, many of you, you're a model of this. I love that this is not a foreign concept to us largely. This is more of an encouragement than trying to reorient our categories. This is more of a, hey, let's keep doing this. Let's keep growing in this. Many of you model this, and I want to commend you. Man, I think of people like Eric and Sarah Goodell, and Stephen Andrea Miller, Pete and Caitlin Matthews, Tim and Jill Ramirez, Kyle and Michelle Osborne, you guys show this, you model this, and many others. But I just want to highlight a couple of those, those couples. So if you want to learn how to do that, go hang out with them, and they'll show you. But church, let us practice the heart of healthy mission by practicing hospitality. Finally, the message of healthy mission. What is the message that we are to proclaim? Well, verses 5 and 6 tell us, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, Timothy pastored a church in Ephesus, excuse me, and the city of Ephesus had the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Massive structure dedicated to the worship of one of the gods of the Greeks and Romans. And so every day, this church was bombarded by the message that there are more than one God, there's more than one religion, over and over and over again. And Paul writes to remind them, no, there's only one God. And this message of the gospel is for all people. It's not as if the one true God is the God of just this select number of people and everybody else has their own gods. It's not as if the gospel is just for this one group of people and everybody else has their own message. The gospel is for all people. There is one God and there is one mediator. And they were to proclaim that to everyone, regardless of religion, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of background. There is one God. Now, our culture, to call it polytheistic, wouldn't be accurate, but it is certainly pluralistic. And so, what we hear is that all religions lead to the same place. There may only be one God, but all religious beliefs, whether Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist, they all lead to the same place. But what God's word tells us in this passage is that there is only one God and there is only one way to that God, and that is Jesus Christ. 
There isn't multiple paths to one place. There is one path, one way, one truth, and that is through Jesus Christ. He's the only way to God. As Peter and John told the religious leaders in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so church, the message that we proclaim is that all come to God and know God through Jesus Christ alone. This is the message we proclaim. Verses five and six also tell us that Jesus is a mediator and a ransom. So a mediator stands between two parties who are unable to reconcile and tries to bring reconciliation. And so for you and me, like our sin has made us rebels and enemies to God. We've rebelled against him and his goodness and his truth and his righteousness and his glory. We have wrecked and marred what he has made good. We have brought oppression and destruction to what he made good and pure and true and free. Because God is good and just, he rightly punishes and will punish our sin. He rightly deals with evil and injustice. He's not indifferent to our sin. He's not indifferent to the things that we have done to his creation. And there's no amount of good we can do to reconcile ourselves. We can't bring ourselves and our good works because in our sin, our good works are done for selfish reasons. And so there's nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. We need a mediator. We need someone to step in and mediate between us and God. In steps Jesus Christ. He stands between us and God and becomes a ransom. So a ransom is a means of release. To ransom people is to cause people to go free. You see, in our sin, we're enslaved. We're enslaved by its power. We're enslaved by its guilt. We're enslaved by the judgment that is over us. We're imprisoned under that. We cannot escape. But through Jesus Christ, who offers himself as a ransom for all, we can be set free. He pays the price of our condemnation. He died in our place. He was condemned in our place so that we can be set free. Through his blood, we are cleansed and we are set free by the power of the Spirit so that the sin no longer enslaves us. Through Jesus Christ, we are set free from sin's power and from the guilt and from condemnation. This is our message to all people. And so we have to ask, where are we tempted to pull punches? Where, where are we tempted to hold back our message? Where are we tempted to sort of shave off the rough edges in the offense of the gospel? Perhaps saying that Jesus is the only way is a little bit too exclusive for you, and you don't like that. And so you won't really make that clear. Or perhaps it's a little uncomfortable to ask people to repent and turn from their sin to follow Christ. Or, or maybe we like to add to the ransom price. Jesus plus our good works. Jesus plus cleaning ourselves up. Jesus plus a particular kind of education. Jesus plus a particular political belief and political party. We will add to the ransom price to make the gospel a little bit less offensive or make people a little bit more like we are? Where are we tempted to pull punches? Where are we tempted to distort the gospel? Because church, being radically hospitable and welcoming doesn't mean we hold back the message. 
being full of love and grace and not being a jerk does not mean that we water down the gospel and try to get people to be just like us. On the contrary, when we fully grasp that salvation is through Jesus Christ alone, when we fully grasp that it is by grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, full stop, nothing of our good efforts, nothing of cleaning ourselves up, but it is all of Christ and him alone. That is what compels us to proclaim the message to all people. Because look, pluralism can never present a gospel as glorious and as powerful as the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Pluralism cannot offer forgiveness like Jesus can. No other religion can offer forgiveness like Jesus can. No other religion can offer freedom from sin like Jesus can. Pluralism and other religions can't offer the hope of resurrection and restoration like Jesus can. See, there's no message as glorious as the gospel. So when we grasp that, there's no need for us to pull punches. There's no need for us to hold back because we love people and we want them to experience the fullness of God. So we share the message of the gospel. One God, one mediator. This is our message. This is why we pray. This is why we show hospitality. And so in conclusion, verse 7, Paul writes this. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul believed he was called to carry this message. Because as we saw last week, because he had been radically saved, but then also, because he saw the call of God on his life. You and I, were not apostles, but do you know that if you are in Jesus Christ, you have the same call? How many of us lack the faith to walk in healthy mission because we don't see the call of God in our life? We, we don't believe that this call to make disciples applies to us. I'm too messy. I'm, I'm too sinful. I'm too broken. I'm too weak. I don't know enough of the Bible. It doesn't matter. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you're on mission with him. He's given you a call to go and make disciples. So it doesn't matter how messy you are. It doesn't matter how broken you are. It doesn't matter how little of the Bible you know. You're still called to pray. You're still called to show hospitality. You're still called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the hope for us. He gives us his spirit. He gives us his presence. He gives us his power. He gives us his church. And he gives us his gospel. And he calls us to go. And so church, let's practice healthy mission in light of all that Christ has done and called us to. Amen.